Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Me, joined this week, as always, by my faithful co-host, Mr. Adam Shear. How's it going, Adam? Jerry, I am feeling nostalgic today. <laughs> and, you know, it's not just because we're around the holidays and brings up good memories of holidays prior, but uh, just what we have planned for the listeners today is right on target. Yeah. Stay on target. This this is a nostalgic episode. What are we talking about, Jerry? Yeah, I, I'm really excited for this episode. I've been looking forward to it for a while. And of course, what we have planned for today is collectibles and the financial advising world surrounding collectibles. And you know, uh, honestly, just a really great market opportunity for a lot of CFPs out there who maybe haven't really figured out what their niche niche is going to be as far as you know what they focus on uh, for you know finding clients. So I'm I'm excited about this, and you're right, it is very nostalgic and nostalgia sells as we have uh, <laughs> you know experienced over the last couple of years. Uh, it is it is really funny from like a cultural standpoint, though, Adam that. You know, I've heard many people say this, that we're like the nostalgia generation. Yeah. Um, you know, thing I every it feels like every every other week there's some like nostalgia thing in the news. Like I remember when, you know, Toys R Us was going out of business. Yeah. And everyone was like, oh, my God, it's the end of the world. <laughs> Toys R Us is closing. What are we going to do? And it's like, what was the last time you went to a Toys R Us? You yeah. know, the reason why they're closing is because no one goes to Toys R Us anymore. They just <laughs> order it all off Amazon. <laughs> what is Jeffrey the Giraffe doing for work now? That's a question for the listeners. If yeah. you happen to see see Jeffrey the Giraffe, you know, check in with him. Let us know how he's doing. <laughs> Has he found new meaningful work? <laughs> right. <laughs> But we got a um our as Toys R Us was closing, we did we did one last hurrah with my kids and got a trampoline that we have in our backyard right now mm -hmm. on like a crazy, crazy, crazy clearance. And yeah, for as thrilled as we were to get that on super clearance, I I was filled with with foul language while assembling it in the backyard <laughs> by myself. <laughs> so. Right, right. But I mean, I totally understand it because nostalgia is such like a feel good feeling that, yeah. you know, it, it's this warm, it reminds you of your childhood. And especially when, you know, the real world is not looking so hot, you know, there's all sorts of political disagreements and wars and climate change. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of natural for people to kind of retreat back to this warm, safe, fuzzy feeling of nostalgia. Yeah. And, we see it everywhere from like, you know, movies coming out of remakes and sequels to, uh, you know, really the big thing, the focus of what we wanted to talk about today is more and more people these days are putting significant investment assets into collectibles. Yeah. And I mean, to clarify, collectibles has always really been a thing to a lesser extent, but it's been more focused on things like coin collectors and, <laughs> you know, jewelry or art or you know wine you know those have been the traditional collectibles that most financial advisors and it's usually more limited to very high net worth uh clients you know your average uh your average client is not going to have a hundred thousand dollar wine cellar <laughs> you know it's yeah, a very yeah. it, it, it's always been a very small subset of most clients when it comes to 
you know, collectibles and and things of that nature. But in recent years, it's really broadened out to very, very uh, diverse collectibles that people are getting into and also all sorts of income levels. So like even some of your, you know, youngest, maybe smallest account size uh, clients could have some pretty significant collectible assets. And there's definitely some pitfalls to that. And then there's also some benefits of that. And there's also a lot of tax considerations with that. So that's just kind of what we wanted to get into uh, today. Yeah, it's a it's a really fascinating topic. And I've enjoyed prepping for this episode and learning a little bit more. And, and even just thinking through the people in my network, in my life, who have taken this up as something that that is a serious segment of of how they invest. Mm-hmm. You know, they they have their traditional investments, uh, but they do this both for fun and and also for potential for appreciation. Yeah. Um, and now, before we get started with with the real technical stuff, um, have you been to conferences in the past? I mean, what what does this look like for you? Or is there anything that you collect? Oh yeah. So, and that's actually kind of what, what spurred this is, um, a really great, uh, thing for advisors, especially new advisors is the potential for getting clients this way, because I have stumbled into a number of clients through, you know, my casual collectible time. Cause I do have, you know, various, you know, nerd hobbies <laughs> that involve collectibles. And it's almost like you have this built in client base because if you're going out and doing the things that you enjoy anyways, and you just start and it, and those things that you enjoy have a community around them, you're naturally going to like, oh, what do you do for work? What do you do for work? It's like, oh, I, you know, I do financial advising. And they're like, oh, I'm looking for a financial advisor. And, oh, you know, we both are into this same, you know, collectible, you know, that's a shared interest. They It, it instantly builds rapport and trust with these clients. And it's like instant client base. Um, and it, it just really helps because you speak their language. It's the same thing as, you know, we've had plenty of advisors on who, you know, they're former army. So a lot of their clients are army or, you know, they're a career changer from a firefighter. So a lot of their clients are firefighters because they know the ins and outs of it. You know, when you can make that connection with your clients, it makes the client accumulation process so much easier. Um, oh yeah. So it keeps your messaging really focused. You can speak directly to the issues that you know are on the mind of the people that you're serving. Um, I see that with a financial planner that's in my network who is a former musician who mm-hmm. does financial planning for musicians. And I mean, it, you see people like that in the entertainment space that were previously uh, actors or or even athletes that are now on the other side of it, opening up firms that are specifically intentionally focused on the people that they used to be. Right? They're they're well aware of the issues. And now with the technical knowledge, you have a, a real winning formula there. Yeah. So I can't tell the number of times I've been at like, you know, some convention or, you know, swap meet or something like that geared to these. And people are like, oh, hey, I have so-and-so and I'm looking for advice. Can like we set up a meeting? Or, you know, hey, I'm, you know, I have all these collectibles that have value. I want to put them in a trust or I want to, you know, insure them and I'm not sure how to do Mm -hmm. it. You know, can we do this? And it turns into like, oh, well, you know, let's take a look at your retirement. Let's take a look at your your kids' college savings. 
and it just naturally progresses from there. So I think that's probably the biggest piece of advice I would give to new advisors or career changers, uh, you know, who are, you know, just entering this and looking for those first clients is go naturally towards your own personal interests and hobbies and find those clients that way. And I think you'll have a much easier time than going door to door, you know, cold calling or just knocking on doors <laughs> for, uh, you know, just at random people and trying to make a connection with them that way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, where do we start here? I, I thought actually a place where we could start is just what the IRS defines a collectible. Asset, yeah. Because I think that, that. that just creates some good groundwork. So um, for those of you uh, super nerds on the tax side, uh, section 408 of the Internal Revenue Code, it defines collectibles as works of art, rugs or antiques, metals or gems, stamps or coins, alcoholic beverage, or any other tangible personal property uh, that's specified by the Treasury. They also include musical instruments and historical objects, so documents, clothes. So I think a lot of the collectibles in current day that we think of, whether that be, um, I don't know, it could be Lego sets, right? It could be, uh, it could be Marvel uh, characters and 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 toys. Uh, it could be any of those nostalgia pieces associated with something in pop culture, right? That's going to be tangible personal property kind of in, in that realm. Mm -hmm. But there you have the tried and true. I mean, you listen down to this and you're like, oh yeah, stamp collector, coin collector, yeah. art collector, antique collector, um, metals or gems. And um, I was happy to see musical instruments up there because it it just really quick re quickly reminded me when I was in my 20s and I used to do guitar lessons at a, a the local guitar shop. And I absolutely fell in love with this Gibson. It was an ES-175 for mm -hmm. all these guitar, guitar folks out there. Um, and I would play it every day on my break. And I was saving diligently to buy it. <laughs> and it got scooped up by some dude that was a collector, yeah. I learned later. And I was so irate because I was like, you're just going to take that thing. And you're going to stick it in a, a room with a humidifier. You're never going to play it. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but that that is a collectible item. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the space for that with with instruments, uh, there can be some really valuable instruments that are are created out there that that appreciate over time. Yeah. And, and in my experience also, there is a lot of wiggle room, especially with the historic um, aspect. Cause for example, you know, companies have definitely latched on to this whole collectible uh, trend and you'll actually see things like Hasbro will come out with like branded, like it says on the box, like collectible, like getting people to buy these things <laughs> as a collectible. But like you said, because it's so recent, it's it's considered, you know, personal property. You know, if you go to Target and you buy, you know, a Darth Vader helmet at Target and it says, you know, collectible, I think that's like the Black Series is how they they brand it. You know, that wouldn't necessarily be a collectible because it's, it's on the shelves. You can buy it right now. The idea being that, you know, you'd buy it and maybe 20 years from now it'd be a collectible. But if you go back and uh, you buy like the original run of Star Wars action figures from like 1977, those would be considered a collectible because they have historical value uh, and mm -hmm. 
it's a very vague blurry line of like where that uh where that uh change happens you know where it goes from you know a historical collectible to a personal tangible property um but that is just an important distinction to make to avoid these companies that are just you know pumping out you know branded collectibles just trying to kind of take advantage of you know suckers who are looking to make a quick buck and don't really know what they're getting uh sure it, it reminds me a lot of this happened in the comic book industry in the 90s. So like 1950s, 60s, even 70s era comic books were considered like the gold and silver uh, age of comic books. And some of those are very, very expensive. You know, like Superman number one is, you know, over a million dollars for this single comic book. Wow. And in the 90s, people realized that and comic book collecting became very popular and so companies just started pumping out more and more of these comic books, selling it to people who thought that they were getting collectibles. Oh, yeah. And now yeah. all those comics from like the 90s and early 2000s are pretty much just worthless because so many of them were printed that they would never yeah. come back to like the 1960s or 1950s. Uh, levels of you know popular just because of so few of them being pr printed and even the ones that were printed a lot of them were just thrown away because people treated them like newspapers back in the day for sure yeah i mean it's it's really at its core right it's just it's economic basics right that if you have something that's rare and whether that's rare by number that were pressed or the rarity comes with the condition mm -hmm. of it right yeah um that that's gonna be priced higher as a collectible than things that are just printed endlessly. I actually had a little moment of time in the, like the, the late eighties, early nineties where I, I collected comic books for a while. And I remember they came up with these, these new series seemingly every week, there was like a new series and a new number one that you'd have to write and then and, alternate covers and you know, yeah. all sorts of like crazy <laughs> marketing things. Yep. Oh my goodness. And, yeah. Um, I recently, I'd say within the past two years, uh, this is one of those things that got left at my mom's house in in her attic. So I needed to to clear out a couple of items from there, being that I'm you know in my 40s and have belongings at my mom's attic. <laughs> so I cleared out the comic books. I cleared out my baseball card collection from when I was a kid. Um, but that was the heyday for for those types of collectibles. And when you look back at the pricing now the the companies were onto it they knew that people were buying into these things in the way that they were because they they had this notion that oh it's going to be like a hank aaron card right yeah or it's going to be like a mickey mantle rookie card right and it's going to carry that value and there are few and far between because of the numbers that were produced that still have any worth i mean i have thousands of baseball cards now i don't know, even know what to do with them um, <laughs> but they're basically worthless but you know what though i i collected them not as an investor though and that's actually a key point here yes. so yeah i was collecting baseball cards but i was not in collectibles as an investment and that's a key piece with all of the stuff that we mentioned at the top of the episode that your purpose going in is as an investor right? I'm investing in this, this thing, this piece of art, uh, this musical instrument with the hopes, much like my investments, that over time, it's going to, to appreciate. And that later down the line, I can sell this off at a profit. Yeah. Um, and keep really key point with when it comes to collectibles is that it's not just because you bought the, you know, 
the rare Lego set and, you know, you're just going to you're going to keep it on the sidelines and, and open it up one day and play with it and you have it. No, it's it's sealed. It's going to be in the condition. Um, friends of mine who are really in the collecting world are are meticulous about their records. They keep receipts. Yep. They have uh, really thorough documentation on this stuff and they treat it just like a ledger. Right. It's just like, here's here are my things. They you know, this is where it's valued at currently. Oh, and there's go to all the conferences. All, I mean, it's crazy. There's all sorts of companies out there that are specialized and they specifically make no kidding. Yeah, they make software to help you track collectibles. You know, it, wow. it depends from collectible right. like. But especially if you're looking at kind of like the card, the card games like Magic the Gathering, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, yep. like all, there's all sorts of different card games that are very collectible. There's dedicated companies to tracking. And it's honestly, it looks like I, I would pull up a website because I was very into uh, Magic the Gathering when I was younger. Um, yeah. And like you pull up the website and it looks like stock tickers. Like they have like they have like can- <laughs> candlestick pattern prices on like the yeah. history of the card. And, you know, they give you quotes from a bunch of different places. And like it's very, very much geared towards a, a very investing outlook on it. And like you said, Adam, that's kind of like the biggest pitfall that I caution clients away from is. You have to go into these things first and foremost with just a love of whatever it is. Like first and foremost, you have to be getting just enjoyment out of just owning these. If you go into Mm -hmm. this where making money is your primary goal, you're probably going to end up getting burned more often than not. Because especially if you don't like if you don't really know what the market looks like, you're going to fall victim to a lot of those, you know, over pumping, overhyped uh you know things that these companies come out with with like you know their first edition alternate cover get it now before it's sold out and those things always end up being worthless because they make way too many of them and people just don't actually care about it you know yeah but um you know things come in cycles too uh you know for example during covid uh, i would have said pokemon was just you know dead and you know that was just like being like i would say it was compared to like beanie babies if anyone knows yeah beanie babies (laughs) beanie babies were huge in the 90s and they were worth you know thousands of dollars and now you look on like ebay and they're like what used to be a thousand dollar beanie baby is now five dollars because the demand isn't there anymore and there's so many of them out there, it drives prices down. Um, But then things can change because I would say Pokemon was like that as well up until the COVID pandemic. And being aware of the collectible space, um, I definitely don't know Pokemon very well, but I have seen the prices and a lot of the prices during COVID skyrocketed because even though there's a lot of them out there, there was such a huge nostalgia resurgence in Pokemon. I think they came out with like a new video game, like Pokemon Go. Yeah, and, Go. Uh, yeah, if right? you remember Pokemon that, like Go. everyone and their mother was yeah. out there catching Pokemon with their virtual cell phone. And like that caused a whole <laughs> new interest that. in it. And so the demand came back and then the prices skyrocketed. And that's another kind of pitfall plus potential benefit of collectibles is it's very cyclical. It can come and go depending on public interest in in that particular category. I feel like we're for those of us that don't know the space well, and I, I admittedly don't. There's there's not a, there's not one thing that I would say. Well, I collect I collect this <laughs> thing, whatever it may be. Um, I have I have guitars, but I I don't collect them like an investor. I collect I get guitars. Um, I don't have 
have what uh, Walter Becker from Steely Dan would call gas, yep. <laughs> which is guitar acquisition syndrome. Mm -hmm. I do not have gas, uh, <laughs> but um, I use them to play. So it's it's not that that distinction is important because I don't have the I mean, I'm looking over here in the corner of my office. I have a couple of guitars in the corner. They're not at, at a, a temperature. Um, they're not pristine. <laughs> I mean, my kids played my the other day. My daughter was like, like tripping into the guitar and you know they're not they're not in a safe space with the intention of selling them off one day at a at a profit um but but i i feel that for people that are interested in the space knowing just some basics about the the tax is important because it's different it's not yeah let's get into treated like a like a capital gain asset like your mutual fund would be or your ETF or um your index fund it doesn't look like that at all actually so collectibles are considered under the umbrella of capital assets right so they are under the umbrella but they have special rates that apply or at least special treatment so when we think in the financial space of all right capital gains rates 0, 15, 20, as things currently stand, right? Um, it kind of depends on what your taxable income is plus your capital gains. It's going to determine which one of those rates uh, apply. With collectibles, we have a special rate of 28% maximum, but it does not mean that when you sell your collectible at a gain, it's going to be a 28% tax. It's actually the, the lesser of 28% or your highest marginal tax bracket. Yep. So, and, and that's a that's common, the way it works. That's a common misconception because I hear that all the time from advisors who maybe tangentially like they know just a little bit about collectibles and they just automatically vote, "Oh yeah, tax rate's 28%." And they totally nope. forget about the marginal aspect of it. Absolutely. And think about what that could mean for clients that maybe don't have huge taxable income but are in collectibles is that you could find ways to sell off the collectibles and not get walloped with the, the 28%. Yep. Um, so the tax people will, will consider collectibles. They'll call it a capital gains basket, right? And there, though there are basically three baskets that your cap gains are going to fall into one, which is going to be subject to that 10, 15, 20% rate. There's another basket, which is for, Section 1250 property, uh, there's a separate podcast about this for those of you interested in listening to it, but that's basically real estate that's used in business. Mm -hmm. And that is going to have a 25% rate. Collectibles have the highest rate potentially of the group, um, which is at 28% at maximum. Yeah. So that's the way it works. The nice thing though, is that there's even clever things that you can do. If you have a lot of gains in that basket, that collectible basket, you can not only can you use losses in collectibles to offset those gains in that 28% basket, but you can actually use some of your capital losses. Yeah. And you can you can use your capital losses from your your investments in your brokerage account to offset the losses uh that are in the 28% bracket. And of, of course you're subject to that um you just have to be mindful of what those numbers are, but that's the way that it works is that the netting process actually takes your losses from that investment bucket 
you bring it all the way up to the 28% and you can start using the losses to reduce those other gains from other buckets that are in, in the 28% or 25%. Yeah. So, and, and that's great advice to give clients because that's the sort of thing a client would never think of. And yeah. if as an advisor, you bring that up to a client, they're going to say, oh man, this, this, this guy's worth it. Or this, this girl's worth it. I'm so glad I have this financial advisor for sure. these things. Um, with the- so where does this take place, Jerry? Like, what are are there online auction sites? I mean, how or it, is it mostly through uh, the convention spaces? It depends on the collectible for sure. Some are more online. It depends on how tangible. So myself personally, um, the things that I collect is I collect uh, World War II memorabilia. Oh, wow. And I got into that because, uh, you know, when my grandfather died, we were cleaning out his yeah. stuff and he was uh, he was a Marine in the Pacific during World War Two. And I, wow. I fo- found his old trunk that had, you know, it had like a bayonet from, you know, uh, his army days. It had like a helmet. And that sparked my interest and like set me on this whole, uh, you know, uh, path of collecting World War Two stuff because it reminded me of my grandfather. Mm-hmm. That stuff is very much like swap meet orientated, going to like uh, shows and conventions. There is a little bit of online stuff, but not really. Um, that one is definitely more kind of an in-person style collectible. Uh, and then also, um, I have I kind of got out of it a few years ago, but when I was younger, I was really into Magic the Gathering. And yep. that is a very much online focus, buying and selling online, all sorts of uh, websites. In fact... Uh, if you remember uh, Mount Gox, so Mount Gox was one of the first Bitcoin exchange websites out there. Okay. Yep. Um, and they like, uh, you know, 2010 around then, they were one of the first websites where you could do online exchanging of, of Bitcoin. Mount yep. Gox stands for Magic the Gathering Online Exchange. It started off as a website for trading magic cards. Oh, okay. That started using Bitcoin as a way to facilitate the exchange of magic cards. Yeah. And then eventually the Bitcoin overtook it. And then Mt. Gox became one of the biggest online exchange places for Bitcoin. So it's kind of funny wow. how, you know, that, <laughs> that originated. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, that one is, is very much online. And speaking of that, before we get too far away from the, uh, the tax aspects of things, one thing I wanted to bring up is, uh, collectibles is a riff with tax fraud. Oh, wow. And the reason why is because it's a very murky gray area. The IRS doesn't have a lot of insight into collectibles. Um, A lot of it is, you know, in-person trading, which is very hard to track. And then also, frankly, a lot of people just don't just don't report their collectible uh, income or, or, you know, because either they're doing it nefariously or just from ignorance. A lot of people just like, Oh, this is just a thing that I bought and sold. Why do I need to report it? So there's a lot of tax fraud in that, but from the intentional tax fraud thing, a very interesting thing uh, that's kind of well known in the magic, the gathering community is that the, uh, 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 kind of cycles of prices for cryptocurrency and magic, the gathering were almost exactly the same. And there's Whoa. a very specific reason. And by that, what I mean is when cryptocurrencies went up in value, magic mm-hmm. card prices went up in value. When cryptocurrencies went down in value, magic cards went down in value. And oh. there's a very specific reason for that. And it's that a lot of 
these people with cryptocurrency gains and were trading their cryptocurrency for Magic the Gathering and other collectibles Jeez. as a way to obfuscate those gains and hide those cryptocurrency gains from the IRS by putting it into collectibles, which they could then sell the collectibles for cash and not report on their taxes. So when you saw cryptocurrencies skyrocket in value, people were cashing out their uh, their cryptocurrencies and buying these collectibles, which in turn caused the collectibles to skyrocket in value. Wow. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because early adopters of cryptocurrency were kind of, you know, very you know nerdy computer. And I say that as a nerd myself. So, <laughs> you know, very nerdy. And then the collectors <laughs> of, you know, Magic the Gathering and other collectibles like that are also very nerdy. The Venn diagram of those two demographics is a circle. <laughs> so it makes sense. But it, it's just a very funny uh, overlap in looking at the price cycles of these and how, you know, tax avoidance caused these two markets to be linked. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I see this brings up another thing. We were planning actually on doing a separate episode about this, but this is a good time to mention it. So the 1099K form, right? That is that reports payments that you had for either goods or, or services throughout the year. And it basically is for any third party provider or platform that you use. So it could be Stripe, it could be PayPal. Um, it could be through Amazon. And last year, the thresholds were higher before the, that had to be issued. And the rules changed and they dropped that threshold all the way down to $600. Mm-hmm. And going into this year, they were going ex- to be expecting people using third party platforms for receipt of payments to have uh to be receiving basically 1099k forms from their third party platforms when they earned more than $600 through the platform um the people pushed back on it because it didn't give tax practitioners enough time to adjust we have an interim year coming up where i think it's going to be $5000 uh in terms of receive payments received before a 1099 is generated but then it's going to drop down to 600 the following year so all of this matters because if people are selling collectibles at a convention and they're using a Stripe account or they're using their PayPal account um, or they're selling collectibles on Amazon, uh, that is going to have impact. And I think a really good rule of thumb is to document your your sales and to the IRS expects us all to report gross income derived from all sources year after year, but especially when they have the tax form that's getting generated that has your name, your taxpayer ID on it, and it's saying so-and-so received X amount of money through this platform. I think it's going to drive a lot of people that are using those third-party platforms for transactions to now have to really get tight on their their documentation and uh, making sure everything is reported in, in the year that they received it. Yeah, it's a huge thing. And I, and I do really think it is in response to kind of the explosion that we've seen in the collectible market. And also the IRS is definitely aware of people dodging on cryptocurrency taxes. There are a whole bunch of cryptocurrency rules put in place oh. in the last couple couple of years to avoid that very thing happening. Yeah, they put that the big the big nebulous check in the box as they were sorting things out. <laughs> Have you exchanged, transferred, 
received any digital currency in the current tax year, check the box. Yeah. Um, my in one of the tax returns that I prepared uh, a couple of years back was it was just chock full of a ton of cryptocurrency buys and sells. <laughs> and it was an absolute nightmare to prepare. So just know that if you're in that space, uh, I know they're still sorting out kind of the the journaling of it, the ledgers they're sorting out. Um, how do we track the 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 basis of of this when it gets transferred from one place to another? Um, the check in the box on Form 1040 about digital currency is basically a cue to say the IRS has their eye on this space, and by you checking yes, you need to have the information to back it up, um, just like you would with with the rest of your tax documents. Yep. But yeah, it's definitely on their radar because kind of the next thing I wanted to talk about uh, was the fact that COVID, the the COVID lockdowns especially, was mm-hmm. a huge, uh, you know, catalyst to collectible markets everywhere. Basically, we saw prices in everything from like World War II collectibles to comic books to wine to stamps to coins, all the traditional collectibles all greatly increased in value. And there's a couple reasons for that. Um, the first off was the COVID lockdowns. Everyone's stuck at home. They're not going out. They're not, you know, going to get dinner. They're not going to the movies. Everyone's stuck at home. So now they have more disposable income for those who were fortunate enough not to lose their jobs. You know, they, they weren't able to spend this money elsewhere. They're stuck at home and they're looking for something that they can enjoy from the comfort of their own home. Well, yeah. what's something that really fits that bill? Collectibles, you know, getting your shelf together and setting up your display or, you know, rifling through them and, you know, just getting that enjoyment was something that a lot of people felt. And that's uh, why we saw an explosion in popularity of especially nostalgia based collectibles. So like yeah. Pokemon cards and comic books and baseball and basketball cards and things like that. Those all exploded in value uh, because everyone's stuck at home and there's this big, huge demand that didn't exist beforehand. Uh, And then following it was the uh, huge amount of inflation that we uh, experienced in the years following the COVID lockdown. Because something we haven't mentioned yet is uh, collectibles is actually a pretty good inflation hedge uh, as part of a portfolio because you know, collectibles increase in value over time uh, along with, you know, the money as people have more money, the money supply increases, people are willing to pay more for those collectibles. So as long as it's not something like Beanie Babies or I feel bad, my grandfather, I think I got my collecting gene from my grandfather. He collected uh, trains. Oh, yeah. And, you know, trains used to be a huge collectible back in the day, but now you can't give them away because (laughs) people just aren't interested in them like they were in the past. So, He's, you know, we have boxes and boxes of his old train sets uh, in in my in my parents' basement uh, that we still hang on to. But uh, as long as you're not going going one of those routes, uh, as long as it's a more you know standard, I don't even want to say standard, but a more steady <laughs> collectible, they can end up being great investment uh, inflation hedges for your portfolio. Sure. Yeah, it's um. Definitely. I mean, from from what I'm I'm learning and learning more about the space that it's 
it, it there's opportunity there to to really you know have something that that creates a nice little separate you know satellite portfolio i guess you could think of it for have your core holdings and then have a satellite collectible portfolio and i mean this this also you know i feel like in a way it's been it has been going on for a really long time with with artwork right yeah. where where at these these big auction events um the you know the picassos and van goghs and you name it right the rembrandts they're all they're all sold at these huge auctions and uh for a bunch of money and sports memorabilia as well yeah. i think that that's been pretty steady um outside of the baseball card stuff yeah when you're talking um, like actual like game balls game balls uniform yep. jerseys and yep those are huge yeah. collectibles as well yeah I, I really see it kind of as a continuation of the democratization of the financial industry because it you know it used to be like stocks used to be something only for the very wealthy you know only the very yeah. wealthy had stocks and then online trading became a thing and free tr- commission free trades and thing and now stocks are for everyone now you know yeah. like pretty much anyone is like, oh yeah, I got some trading app on my cell phone and I just, you know, did a trade. Like that would have been unheard of 20 years ago. And now it's completely normal. And I kind of view the collectible market the same way, you know, collectibles used to be only for something for the very wealthy, you know, people with their art collections and their, their alcohol collections. And now collectibles is very much uh, a more widespread aspect of it. But with that, of course, we've kind of alluded to before comes a lot of, you know, maybe not the best uh, actors in the space. I think, you know, NFTs is kind of the first thing that jumps to my mind of just like absolute scam artists trying to take take advantage of the new collectible, you know, investing worlds. I mean, it it, it exploded onto the scene and then puttered out into, you know, little little smolder. <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's something to really caution clients on is, you know, you got to make sure it's not a flash in the pan. You know, you yeah. you want something uh, that's going to be hold its value and not just, you know, peter out and be worthless. And, and that can be very hard to to tell, you know, even like when I think of my grandfather, their trains, like he didn't do it as an investing thing, you know, but still it's like, how would you know that those would just not be popular in the future? Yet, you know, some, some other thing is, and it is very popular. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those, it, I mean, it is very much like the investment markets in a way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can try to become as informed about the, just the patterns in the markets and how, how they work. And um, yeah, there's going to be some risk involved yep. with some of the stuff that's lesser known. There's lesser research around. There's lesser, you know, a smaller, shorter timeline. Um, I'm always wary of the the new thing that that just becomes this huge phenomenon because you never quite know the staying power of that stuff. And I think you've actually seen that in the crypto space as well, where for a moment there, I mean, we had all these different types of crypto coins, and I I didn't even know half of them existed. Yep. Um, <laughs> But even people that that I know that were more locked into the crypto space, some of the software engineers that were really familiar with with how how that worked and some good places to invest for them um, have said, yeah, these days I only have a, a very short list of places I'd feel comfortable going and, and investing in the crypto market um, until things change, if they do change. So, yeah. yeah. I feel like collectibles are very, very much the same way, but it comes back to your first point, Jerry, which is, is the driver here 
is is really the joy of of doing it, right? Yeah, that's got to be priority number one. Yeah, you have to actually yeah. enjoy this and do it first and foremost for the enjoyment and love of whatever your hobby or collectible is, and then the investment aspect is is you know what comes after. Like with my Magic yeah. the Gathering, you know, I started that when I was in middle school, and I did it because it was something all my friends did. It was just sure. the cherry on the top that you know when I got into my mid twenties. I was able to sell all those magic cards for, you know, a 10 times multiplier from what I sold it for. And, you know, I'm like, oh, well, that that ended up working out really good. But that was because I got blind luck, blind luck. And I chose the right collectible to be interested in, not because I was doing it as an investment aspect. <laughs> yeah, I was just listening to a podcast episode um, just the other day about uh, sports memorabilia company fanatics and kind of where that came from and it was from their ceo and just how how they feel like that also is an untapped area in a way i mean it, there's there's a lot of people that that are in that space and and love sports collectibles and getting jerseys and sign this and sign that um just last year we were out we we took my daughter to new york for her birthday and we were staying in a hotel and right next to us were the the Boston Red Sox. They were they were playing the Yankees that day or that evening. And, you know, there's all these these kids and then clearly collectors lined up outside the hotel with their their big binders of cards, yep. you know, and and pictures and different memorabilia that they're hoping to get signed by the players. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, but the fanatics, the fanatics. CEO said that there's there's still I think they've just they acquired tops the mm -hmm. baseball card company and yep. they're looking for ways to to reinvent kind of and and just reestablish the the card market um through some changes but yeah there's this is this is just a big thing if it's being talked about on some of these bigger podcasts and on the Biff Fights podcast this is just something oh, I thought that's what you meant on. by the bigger podcast. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah. of course. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's, you know, the to bring it to our audience uh, and, and where they're at, those those tax pieces, I think, are are really vital for you to be understanding the basics of how this will work as as part of the transaction. Right. Yeah. Because that's going to be the first place, I think, some of the understanding gets a little murky mm -hmm. that it's not that traditional 15 0 15 20 um that you could be looking at 12 yep. if that's your highest marginal tax bracket <laughs> you could have 12 percent gains right on on that 12 so, capital gains yeah um after taxes i think behavioral finance is the next ah, area yep. to really focus on with clients because with this nostalgia and you know if your client is doing everything right they're doing it for the love of the collectible rather than an investment aspect with that is going to come some very strong emotional attachments and behavioral biases um a client i worked with a few years ago um was this was the exact thing that he ran into was he had uh, a magic the gathering card collection appraised like actually appraised took it to the parade like did all the right things two hundred and fifty thousand dollar magic the gathering card collection and he had fifty thousand dollars of credit card debt and i'm like come on man just take a portion of your collection sell it pay off the credit cards and you can slowly rebuy that collection 
you know, by with the savings you make by not making this, in, you know, 20% interest payment on $50,000. And he's like, sure, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, what if I'm not able to buy it back? Like I've had this one for years and yeah. And it's, it, it's a really hard thing to get through to a client who has such an emotional attachment to it, where this makes a complete mathematical sense. All the dollars and cents line up. This is the smart thing to do but his emotional attachment was so high that he couldn't bring himself to do it. And wow. You'll see that you'll see these people who are, you know, getting evicted because they can't make their mortgage payments. And then they have, mm-hmm. you know, tens, 20, hundreds of thousands of dollars in a collectible that they just can't bring themselves to sell. Yeah. I guess it's, it's, and you see that with investments as well. You see that um, with I I've seen it in practice with, inherited investments mm-hmm. that it's it's really tough to part with with the investment because there's memory attached to it and they're they're viewing it as something that was passed along to them for a reason and they want to hold on to a little bit of that but but yeah we're we're just um we're we're filled with biases yeah. <laughs> right and and it's it's no surprise that it gets it gets expressed in this space as well I'd say even more so just because of a lot of the the good feelings that you have in collecting these and probably the places you would go and the memories you have around when you got certain items, right? Um, yeah, I, I, that's going to be tough to stay neutral mm-hmm. and and behavioral bias free yeah. uh, given given all those circumstances. But sometimes you just got to be the bad guy and tell the client it is you know, exactly <laughs> like it is. But that's that's why they hire us. You know, that's that's why they that's come true. to us is to help them make those bad decisions. I <laughs> I actually had a friend who who owned a uh, a card shop and they actually got called into a divorce proceedings where the judge was splitting up the the assets. Yeah. One of the assets was like a hundred thousand dollar Magic the Gathering card collection. And she had to come in there and like be the appraiser and like say, like, this is worth this much, this is worth this much. Sure. And like the judge yeah. is there, you know, like dividing up <laughs> dividing <laughs> up the magic card collection as, as part of the divorce proceedings. So <laughs> that that's I mean, sorry to hear about the the separation, <laughs> but that's pretty funny that that the the legal your your pursuit of the legal profession would one day end up at a collectible store looking at the valuation of different magic the gathering cards and trying to get it balanced right because <laughs> it's not like you can cut a card in half because that would destroy the no, value no, of, it. of course so how do you break that down um now the one final point i wanted to make uh before we kind of wrap this episode up is insurance aspects of it Oh, because uh, that is a very important aspect to advise clients on, because um, a lot of people don't even think about insuring their collections. But if it's making up a significant part of their portfolio, like, you know, some of these people I've talked to have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of collectibles, you want to have sure. that insured. And people might assume it it falls under their homeowners or renters insurance. And the truth of the matter is usually not. Um, or if it does, it's usually at a limit. Um, most homeowners and insurance policies have named limits for certain collectibles. So jewelry, furs, uh, firearms, because that's another big collectible market is, you know, historical Mm -hmm. artifacts in that regard. Those are usually, depending on your policy, limited to either $2,500 or $5,000. And anyone who's a serious collector, 
is going to have more than $5,000 uh, worth of items in their collection. So a really important thing to bring up with clients is making sure that they are properly insured and getting a rider added on to their policy to make sure that they have coverage for that. And that involves a lot of work because cycling back to what I was saying before about different companies having like software to help you track your collectibles, a big reason to do that is for your insurance policy because your insurance policy is only going to cover what you have records of. So it's very important to, you know, use one of those software programs or at the very least make an Excel spreadsheet or something like that to keep track of what you actually have and what its current values are so that you can make sure if something bad does happen, you get properly covered by your insurance. Good points there. Are, are there, I'm assuming there must be, right? Specialists for mm -hmm. the different types of collectibles uh, as far as appraisals go? Oh, definitely. So like PSA is a, uh, is a big one. BCG is yep. another big one. They more, they focus on like, it's usually with like collectible card games and comic books. Those are sure. the traditional ones because they like vacuum seal it and put it behind plexiglass and, you know, basically it. lock it in, <laughs> lock it in crystal so that it can't be damaged. And they give like a grading of it. Um, yep. But there is lots of other companies I've seen pop up that, um, you know, even things like they'll hold on to your collectibles for you. Like you, oh, you okay. mail them your collectible and they keep it in there climate controlled vaults, uh, you know, with security and all sorts of other stuff as a way of, you know, keeping it safe. And I don't know how I really feel about that. Cause I feel once you start doing that, you start losing the joy of it. You know, part of having sure. a collectible is taking it off your shelf and, you know, you can't sleep at night. So you just take it down and you look at it and you think how cool it is. And I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm alone in that, <laughs> but you think how cool it is. And then you put it back and then you go to sleep. But if you're like sending your collectibles off to some, you know, company that's going to hold it in a vault. Yeah. You know, I think of like the Indiana Jones scene of uh, them pushing the crate down the, down the warehouse. Like, are you really enjoying your collectibles at that point? But for some people that might be something they want to look into to really make sure that they keep their, their quote unquote investment safe. That's a, another great recommendation there. I know my good friend who was a big collector of uh, comic book figures and, and comic books and uh, just just different, you know, Star Wars related stuff and, and Marvel that he he actually took out his childhood bedroom from uh, where his parents live. And because he's moved out now for years, right, it was just empty. They they had a um, they actually put a big lock on the door and that became his storage facility for <laughs> for all of his collectibles um because he ran out of space at his house yep but also just the the security and safety i mean you are if you have someone that's knowledgeable i mean that is something really of value and um i think there's i like the the idea of insurance there but given what you have i mean if you if you are a an instrument collector and you have um violins or guitars or something that is wood most of the time right yep uh, that's going to be really susceptible to the weather conditions and you are going to want something that's climate controlled uh at the very least you're going to want with your acoustic guitar right to 
to have that make sure you have the the hydration in in the air and in the sound hole and like making sure that it's it's good and healthy and good shape because that could actually end up you you get it you get in this new england cold yep and that wood shrinks and it's i've seen it crack yep. if you don't cracks do that. <laughs> and that, that's actually what i run into a lot with my world war ii collectibles is yeah. that you know these things are pushing 80 90 years old and sure you know the the uniforms are made out of cloth and that gets eaten by moths uh yep. you know there's you know metal helmets that rust and you know th- this is stuff that you really do need to make sure you're you know not even protecting it against theft but just protecting it against the elements because sure. they degrade over time and you know uh, as anyone knows the value of a collectible is closely related to its condition and yep mint condition items are going to fetch a big premium, especially the older it is. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, I guess just to kind of summarize the, uh, the episode, Adam, for any of our uh, listeners who got really interested in might be thinking about, you know, building a, a business around this is know your market, you know, focus on the areas that you're a collectible enthusiast yourself, you know, start meeting people, introducing them yourself, you know, telling them what you do and and you'll actually see a lot of uh, business generated that way. Um, then know the tax consequences of it. You know, that's probably one of the biggest wins that you can do with helping a client is how to handle taxes and how to lower their tax bill. Uh, after that, I would say just the behavioral finance, know how to counsel these clients, know how to have them separate their emotional attachment from the financial attachment. Uh, and then also with that, make sure that they're actually, you know, investing in these collectibles for the right reasons, not just, you know, they're looking to make a quick buck. They're actually doing it because they enjoy it. Uh, and then finally, to top it off is, you know, insurance. Make sure you protect those collectibles. Great points across the board and uh, enjoyed prepping for this one. There is a, a lot of good stuff to read through. And it it goes even deeper on the tax side is what I learned. Yeah, so we kept it. We kept it. At, <laughs> we kept it at a, a lighter level, but it, it goes even farther. Yeah. Um, and but just like any of the specialized areas, right? And being able to niche down, you're you're just making what you offer that much more relatable and easier to connect with with a potential client that's out there if they share that same passion or activity or hobby. Yeah. And I, I'm actually really interested. Uh, I'd love for our listeners, if you, if you found this really interesting, write into us and tell us, you know, what collectibles you're interested in, or, you know, even better, if you do collectible advising for clients and there's anything we missed, you know, definitely write in and, and let us know at, uh, at, uh, biffbites.com because, uh, this is just a really fascinating subject and it's a really fun subject. You know, who, who doesn't love, mixing fi- their finances with their own personal hobbies. <laughs> so if you do any uh, uh, financial advising around collectibles and want to uh, give us some pointers or anything like that, I'd love to hear it. Sounds good, Jerry. Yeah. Thanks for putting this episode together. Awesome. Well, definitely. Well, hope everyone enjoyed and we will see you all next week. Take care, everybody. Thank you.